talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. As of today, you can register to get your 5 to 11-year-old vaccinated. Might be a good time to get yours too if you're a straggler. Here's Scott Thompson! If you're a straggler... Good afternoon. It is 3.09. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine on the board. Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks in the newsroom as uh, we roll through a Tuesday, November 23rd. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. Uh, throne speech day in the country. Wake up! Hey, 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 wake up! I know. <laughs> Shh. Hey, we're back. Uh, anyway, what does it mean to us all? Well, we're going to uh, discuss that throughout the course of the day. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun with us. Oh, the top hour tune. Was that yours, William? Yes, yes, it was. That was uh, Get Up. By the band Mother Mother off their no, 2000... see that's another yeah, subliminal thing right there, yeah, isn't right? it? You're making reference to the snooze, aren't I, you? And it just slipped in there. I was saying, you know, I was debating: do I go with some of my more acoustic-sounding stuff, the stuff you would like that has the twang in it, or do I go for the more synthy thing? And at the end of the day, I was like, we just want energetic. So I picked "Get Up" by Mother Mother, Canadian band off their album "Dance and Cry" from 2018. It's interesting that you think I like so much twang, though, Will. Well, you do. You tend to appreciate the twang more. At least that's what we talk about off air more often. <laughs> you, Maybe you're right. Eileen yes. likes the synthy stuff, right? Yeah, she's into the OMD and all that stuff, although she hates the 80s. And I'm thinking, well, what are you talking about? That's the era. That's what? whatever. But I do uh, I do uh, reggae to rockabilly, rockabilly to reggae, anything in between, uh, we're uh, we're going to chat about. All right. Uh, what else we got? Oh, you know where I was? No, I can't tell you that story right now because I think my wife's in the car. All <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you know what that's like. So anyway, especially around this time when you're going to the holiday, it's close to the holidays. Uh, all right, I digress. Congratulations to Rick and Stacy of Stony Creek. You friends that are out there may know who I mean. Uh, at this second, they're getting married uh, on the beautiful shores of Jamaica. Uh, congratulations to them and everybody uh, partying in Stony Creek tonight. All right, uh, let's move on. Speaking of parties, man, that throne speech today, uh, that's just like New Year's Eve, isn't it? Uh, we, a lot of... A lot of what we heard during the election campaign uh, pretty much came out today. I mean, we just I I was jotting down phrases that I've heard several times over the last several years. And I wish I had thought of that sooner. I'm going to write all the next time we do one of these. I'm going to write all these phrases down and then put a check mark beside each time one is mentioned, uh, because, you know, it, it just seemed to be a lot of that. That being said, it is largely pomp and circumstance and such. And we have to respect that for what it is. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategy. Managing Director Abacus Data with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Well, I'm sitting in Cosmic Adventures in Ottawa with my son, Scott. I just said, <laughs> only because of Will and you am I doing this and taking five minutes away or seven minutes away from him. So, yeah, you, you want to talk about a party. Well, there's video games and climbing apparatus all around here. Probably more exciting than today's throne speech. You know what? I, I am just so honored that you've included yeah, us and yeah, the rest yeah. of Hamilton in your cosmic experience with your son. That's very nice of you. We thank you so much for that. We really do. Well, he's hunting sharks right now uh, with uh, with a harpoon <laughs> all on a video game. So as long as he's doing that, we're good to go that, here. That's right. That gives us a few minutes. All right, let's get to it. So your thoughts on what we saw today. Obviously, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance, as we saw yesterday with the uh, selection of the speaker and such. Uh, that being said, we are in a post-pandemic world uh, after an election that nobody really wanted. Uh, are, are Canadians paying attention to this in any way? Do Canadians pay attention to these? Well, they'll hear a lot of coverage about it today and, and tomorrow, but probably they won't pay that much attention to it. I mean, it, it appears to have been a 
pretty standard throne speech. You described it well. You listed, uh, you've written down all the phrases you've heard before. They were used again today. There was nothing dramatically new in, in any of, of the things that were discussed. I mean, you had, uh, as you saw, a commitment to indigenous reconciliation, addressing climate change, building out of the pandemic, addressing um, uh, $10 a day daycare, and getting that done. And those in and of themselves are laudable things, but they're not new. So, Oh, the reaction has been kind of interesting. The NDP weren't jumping up and down saying, yeah, we're with you, Justin Trudeau, because there's been a lot of work uh, done here and a lot of oxygen expended uh, talking about how there might be some liberal NDP coalition. Well, I guess Mr. Singh is playing hard to get today, if that's the case. And the Tories, in their critique, offered their normal critique of, yeah, not much here. Uh, you got to do better. So generally for me, a kind of normal day, Scott. I guess the real details, the things we will see about what this truly means will come when there is actual legislation or the fall-slash-winter economic statement. So, uh, again, one of the phrases we heard uh, a couple of times, building back better or building back or, or some form of that. Are we building or is this a government <laughs> still in still in pandemic mode? Well, the government and Canadians and the world are still in pandemic mode. I mean, there has been some talk, and I think it was flagged a little bit today, from what I saw in the throne speech, of um, you know the need to continue to support people who need help. So as long as we're doing that, we're uh, we're still fighting our way through the pandemic in large measure. Uh, there will be building and the like, but I think we'll see more of that probably in the budget. Uh, but this is this just seemed to be a continuation of the campaign rhetoric and that won them a minority government. So I guess they viewed it as we don't have to ditch this quite yet. Uh, obviously the conservatives aren't able to ditch the whole vaccination thing. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter if uh, they're in uh, the house or not. There's still questions of whether they should be in there. How long uh, do the conservatives let the liberals shape the narrative and keep beating this dead horse? Probably until they provide the public some sense of how many MPs are vaccinated and how many have exemptions. You heard the government house leader yesterday, Mark Holland himself, um, no stranger to um, disturbing the mayor, shall we say, uh, going after the conservatives saying, well, we don't really know what it is, but we don't believe them on the on, on exemptions because statistically they probably don't have as many exemptions as they may actually have, but he's you know he's shooting he's shooting at air but the air appears to be full of targets for him because the conservatives aren't filling that air with any data so until there's a, a more of a, an indication of what's up and who's gotten their shot and who has an exemption in the conservative party the liberals will keep taking these shots uh, at the end of the day, if the Conservatives are in the House, does that not mean that they have followed whatever the protocol is that the people who are in charge of there have to make sure that they have? So if they're in the yes, House, is, yeah. does that not mean that, okay, they're, they're covered in some form? Uh, that being said, why don't the Conservatives just give them the dang numbers they want? Uh well, well, yes, if they've been in the House, then they've passed whatever the protocols are. I don't think we know clearly what the protocols are for the House in terms of exemptions, and I think that's what Holland was getting at, are these exemptions that maybe some MPs got real or not real. Um, so that's the point he is trying to make. Um, yeah, I, I don't know why the Conservatives at this point don't just give numbers. Um, it would be easier for them to do that, and again, they don't specifically have to say who, though one or two people with um, with exemptions are. There is one known MP, one MP that has a known exemption. Dean Allison uh, has spoken out during the campaign about how he had a medical exemption. So I think that's the only person we know of in the Conservative Party that has admitted to having a medical exemption. So do you think the Conservatives will fall because of their vaccine record? I mean, you look at how they went into this last uh, election and where uh, Jason Kenney was. None of this helped the Conservatives. Are they going to let this narrative kill them again? Well, I think they're hoping that the people who are most agitated with them, which tend to be their own supporters, will like the fact that they get to sink their teeth into Justin Trudeau again, because even more annoying for conservatives than their own leader is 
the leader of the Liberal Party. But that will have its shelf life, too, uh, particularly if the Liberals throw it back at the Conservatives. I, I don't know if it'll sink them, but the longer it goes on, it's one of these brand-damaging things that hurts the broader Conservative brand, and then we'll have certain Conservatives saying, see, Aaron O'Toole couldn't even manage this, or he won't go hard on why we need exemption, so he needs to go. So it is, uh, it's a bit like he's trying to dodge that harpoon. My son is firing at fake sharks now, who, and he just hit a big shark, he told me there, Scott. That's the update. There you go. So somebody wins a stuffed animal that you've got to carry home. Uh, Tim Powers with us. A novelty novelty (laughs) item. There you go. Well, we're helping the local economy. That's what we do. That's uh, always good to see and being a great dad, I might add. Tim Powers, uh, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacostata. Tim, as always, thank you so much, especially at this time. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. Bye. Ken Mann reported on this uh, last week, the uh, Hamilton Auditor, uh, 80 reports of fraud and waste by city employees uh, over the course of the next, uh, the last year, rather. Uh, this was the second of an annual fraud and waste report. Uh, this is stuff that comes into a, uh, a hotline or anything that's reported, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, it turns out that this is uh, the amount confirmed loss or waste substantiated by this auditor was about $235,000. Reports now of um, employees uh, perhaps accepting things that they shouldn't have, allegedly, uh, and such. And and as well, a water increase uh, <laughs> to uh, what you're paying for water in the hammer. Uh, when you put all this stuff together, how does it sit with the average Hamiltonian? Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Um, thanks. So uh, earlier today, hearing about an increase in water rates simply to help with uh, infrastructure upgrades that are needed in a city the age of Hamilton's, uh, certainly to be expected. Nobody likes to see an increase. Uh, nobody likes to see an increase and in, uh, a report of uh, things that have fallen through the cracks uh, and, uh, and and waste and fraud and such in the city coming at it about 230 some odd thousand uh, When you put the two of these together, um, what does it do for City Hall, how does it leave citizens feeling? Do they pay attention? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's nothing like a little fraud uh, to make people interested. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's uh, obviously titillating in its own way. Uh, I mean, I think it leaves people two different ways. I mean, on the one hand, uh, you know, the fact that they have uh, this report is an indication that they have some capacity to detect it and uh, deter it. Uh, we saw that uh, maybe eight people lost their jobs as a result of uh, different things uncovered as a result of this. So in a way, you know, it should be seen as a good news story that, uh, you know, by bringing in this hotline a couple of years ago, uh, there's been some capacity to root uh, some of these things out. I mean, at the end of the day, it was really one big scheme where most of the savings are coming from that, you know, ultimately from a coziness between uh, some unknown vendor and some unknown employee, uh, you know, about a quarter of a million dollars uh, was maybe spent, uh, you know, more than it should have been on different contracts through that kind of coziness. Uh, uh, you know, presumably there's other ones like that that haven't been uncovered, and I think that's where it kind of plays the other way, where citizens look at this and they say, well, wait a second, uh, uh, is our is our money being managed properly at City Hall? And, you know, it then turns into, you know, a way of people are upset about, uh, you know, the taxes they're paying or any aspect of the city, this becomes you know, a really easy way to say why why one thinks City Hall is broken and needs to change. You bring up an interesting point, though, Peter. Uh, at least we're getting reported uh, this information. At least we're finding out about it. Is that a good thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's useful to know uh, how well our money is being managed. And through this, you know, uh, you know through reading the report of the uh, city auditor that they provided, uh, you know, even in cases where, you know, fraud wasn't detected, there would be cases where, you know, the uh, bookkeeping isn't as good as it should be, or the policy about use of things like city vehicles uh, could be tightened up. And, uh, you know, it gives you the sense then that uh, there's a bit of, you know, a bit of accountability related to it. Uh, I mean, it's hard in the public sector in the sense that, you know, the idea of uh, 
people going golfing with vendors and then cutting them a slightly better deal, I presume, is not just a public sector thing. It probably happens in a lot of private sector workplaces, yeah. or, you know, abuse of company cars and so on. And but, but you know, know that brings people up people are found you know found having done that they get fired, but it's not like that's going to show up in a, a report to uh, shareholders. You bring up a valid point too, Peter, because this does happen, although I'm sure less now in the private industry. Uh, you know, for example, somebody takes a client golfing in order to get a better deal on something. It can also work both ways. It can also get a better deal for the city. It can also grease, I guess, the person that's the middleman. Uh, but what about the other way? I mean, at the end of the day, I guess just none of this sort of activity is acceptable in municipal politics. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, uh, you're right that in certain ways, relationships can play in a variety of different ways. Uh, you know, the question is how above board are they, right? Mm-hmm. Are, uh, and, you know, it was noted at the beginning of the report that the city's conflict of interest policy is not very clear in some respects, and the manner of reporting conflicts of interest and monitoring it uh, is deficient. And so, you know, if one wants to get the benefit out of uh, these relationships, it's important that they're, you know, sufficiently transparent and properly followed up so that it doesn't, you know, get into the person in the middle kind of uh, capturing, you know, skimming off the, the the cream, if you like, or, or you know, taking benefits in return for favorable treatment, uh, you know, again, to those, uh, you know, vendors that are uh, wanting and dining them or taking them uh, golfing or, you know, taking them on trips. Uh, that being said, uh, about two hundred thirty thousand uh, dollars mentioned in this report. In the grand scheme of things, considering the budget of the city, is this significant or a rounding error? Well, I mean, it's close to a rounding error. I mean, in a way, you know, the report says it took them, you know, the equivalent of two uh, two personnel years uh, to actually follow up on all the different things that I called in. Those sort of eighty eighty tips, you know, um, you know, a number of which weren't weren't substantiated. Uh, you know, some that were made, in fact, to try and, you know, undermine other people. I mean, someone who made one of the complaints actually got fired because it was seen that they were using it, you know, to harass another employee. Uh, you know, so that's, you know, by the time you pay two people full-time with benefits, uh, you're not actually yeah. uh, netting that much out of it. So the hope has to be that the net effect is a positive one in terms of just, uh, a, uh, you know, pushing people not to uh, break these rules. And the fact that eight people lost their work as a result of this probably has a chastening effect. Um, you know, and the, the, the other side of it is that it maybe improves the processes because you uncover where the sort of weak points are. But, yeah, it's, you know, it's not a lot of money, and ultimately the cost of, of doing this uh, isn't, you know, the, what, you, what you recover uh, in, in direct terms is not that much more than you spend on it, but your hope is ultimately you end up with a much more effective organization and hopefully one where the culture improves in terms of, you know, people recognizing uh, certain things are unacceptable and that when you see people doing it, you can, you know, you can make a difference. Uh, it's not like you'll be bullied yourself for pointing out that someone is acting inappropriately. Peter Grape with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too. To catch up on the news and information you've missed, this is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Tomorrow, uh, Thursday and Friday. Uh, Cats tickets to the Cats Alouettes game on Sunday, the Eastern semifinal on Good Morning Hamilton. Rick is going to have your tickets. So very cool. Tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday, Rick Zamper giving away tickets to Sunday's Cats Alouette Eastern semifinal. The trash talk has already started, uh, and he'll have those for you uh, starting tomorrow on Good Morning Hamilton. Oski Wee Wee should be cool. Uh, Kurt and I were out there on the weekend. What a great time it was, man. It was just... Uh, absolutely fabulous time. Even the dog loved it. It was great. Uh, where are we? Oh, yeah. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Lots of you have, and uh, including on the optometrist story. So I wanted to uh, I wanted to touch on this with you really quickly because we have tried to get uh, people from the Ontario Association of Optom- Optometrists to talk about what is going on and their issues with uh, the government and so on and so forth. There's been an ongoing problem for them. Uh, and here is the message they have sent to us. So uh, we have agreed to a media blackout during the time of negotiations uh, with the current Ontario government. Below is the only statement that we are providing at the moment. And basically what they're saying is that the Ministry of Health and the Association have agreed to enter formal negotiations regarding, oh, 
funding for optometric optometric care, a sign of good faith. Uh, the OAO is pausing its job action as of November 23rd. They announced this earlier in the week, ensuing that millions of Ontarians insured by OHIP can again benefit from the expertise of their optometrist during these negotiations. So that's sort of the latest on uh, the optometrist story and what's going on. So we heard lots about it, and then everything was crickets. Everybody, shh, 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 uh, as they've decided to obviously negotiate this uh, out of the media and uh, behind closed doors, which is uh, probably a great idea. All right, uh, what else we got? Oh, I was out at the cotton factory today. You been there, Will? Yeah, I have, but it's been a little bit of time. Uh, me too. And I was out there to uh, see our friend Tom Wilson. And uh, by the way, go out and check his studio there, man. He's got some great art, especially around Christmas time. Uh, anyway, I uh, went through his uh, place there and uh, and through the cotton factory again. I have been there in a long, long time. But what an incredible building uh, that is. And you get there into, into that end of the city, and uh, it's just a completely different feel uh, right along Sherman there and bigger. So uh, uh, if you haven't checked it out, go online, see the history, and uh, inside is just uh, spectacular what they can do with that space. Now, Scott, did you get lost inside? I did. I, yes. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. Kind of creepy. Like you could do some uh, really neat movie production in there. But yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's kind of like a maze once you get inside. So, uh, but very cool, very historic. And man, it just uh, it reeks of Hamilton history. It's just it, it, it. You don't feel any more history than you do uh, walking through a place like that. It's uh, it's truly fabulous. Anyway, I suggest you get down there and uh, support local artists as well. Family, the love of the. Attention, hugging, shaking hands, kissing on the cheek. Things that we all remember from a pre-pandemic era. Uh, And of course, uh, we've experienced that over the last several holidays. Over the last, how many, hang on, let me get 88 weeks. That, uh, you know, uh, guess what? Don't have to meet with those relatives. Don't have to kiss those relatives. Don't have to have that sweat, uh, wet, sloppy kiss. Um, some are missing it. Some are saying, oh, no, now it's easing up and we're vaccinated. And now I got to go back to this stuff. How are we uh, thinking? How are we uh, considering the upcoming holidays now that we are? I think it's like 86 percent of those that are eligible have been vaccinated. So a new Leger poll, a significant number of Canadians are planning on doing away with some of the social distancing protocol at their gatherings. So in other words, maybe you had only the immediate family over last year. Now you might expand uh, expand that a little bit, uh, masking, such, what have you. Uh, let's bring in Dave Schultz, Executive VP of Leger, and with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you're well also. Yes, thanks so much. Are you surprised by this? I mean, I, I guess we're feeling a little bit more comfortable simply because we're all vaccinated, or most of us, vast majority of us are getting vaccinated, if not already. Is it just a different headspace we're in? It is a different headspace, um, but it, you know, Christmas is a stressful time, or the holiday mm. seasons are a stressful time for people, and it, it appears that this is just going to add a little bit of extra stress for everyone um, in terms of, as you said, do you hug them? Do you shake their hand? Um, who do you invite? Because if you have a relative that is not vaccinated, do you have them over or do you not have them over? Mm. Those are all the things that uh, that people are taking into consideration this year. Uh, interesting, because I remember having that conversation last year, because obviously we've been through at least a year and a half of these holidays uh, I- since this pandemic started. And I remember uh, last year, a lot of the question was, are you vaccinated? Or as, as vaccination started, I guess, probably not last year, but certainly any time after May when the, when the mass vaccination started, uh, then the topics became, are you vaccinated? Are you getting vaccinated? Uh, are those still a big issue this year? They are still a big issue, uh, although there's some relaxing there. So um, about 35%, so one in three Canadians, will invite a friend or family member into their home that they knew was not vaccinated. And and we wouldn't have seen this before. And part of this comes from, for the last few months, uh, we've seen, we're still tracking to what degree are you concerned you might get the vaccine. And right, and it's been up and down, but right now it's less than people, you know, less people think they'll get it, 
then who then won't. So it's a positive right. time. We're moving into more of a positive outlook. So we're starting to accept family members and friends back, but not wholeheartedly. Only 35% are willing to do it. But previous to this, I don't think we would even see numbers this high. So that's uh, in the home and inviting people over and such or socializing. What about going out shopping? Because obviously over the course of this, we've certainly, uh, anybody who wasn't uh, well abreast when it comes to online shopping is now. Uh, so <laughs> are we ready to get back out into the malls? Well, we, we are to a certain degree. Um, 36% of Canadians, so a similar percentage to what we are just talking about, are going to go back to the malls like they used to. Uh, but almost half, 42%, say they're going to stick with buying more online like they did last year. And it's a general, it's a general shift that we've seen. And all the research we're doing in the re- retail space, this was a direction we were headed to. It just moved it up yeah. five, ten years. Um, and the online shopping is, uh, for people who hadn't done it before, well, now they have. And uh, the, the world didn't open up and swallow up all their money and no one stole anything and it all worked out. So people are buying it more than ever now. So perhaps this has less to do with them feeling safe or not safe during a global uh, pandemic and just more comfortable with tech as we've all gotten up to speed on this technology that's been around for years. Well, I I think it's a combination of the two. But yeah, it is definitely more people are are more familiar with tech now. Um, and it gives us a good excuse to not have to go to the mall if yeah. you're able to buy it online. And, and to a certain degree, people are going to start spending their money a little earlier this year, too. Uh, a third of us said they're going to start holiday gift shopping earlier than last year. Um, and we didn't go into depth. That could be to avoid crowds. It also could be because they expect to have things delivered because they're buying it online. What about travel? And, you know, I mean, traveling to people's homes is one thing, but also holiday time is a peak period for people getting on jets and going to sunnier climes or even visiting uh, friends and family in other parts of the world. What about travel this year? Um, the, the good news for the airlines is people are starting to get back out there. 18% of uh, people we talked to said that they would visit family or friends by air. And an additional 9% so they would go on a vacation. So that's just over a quarter of Canadians that are, uh, that are opting for air travel at the holiday time. Are we feeling that's, optimistic? That's really good news. We are, are we feeling, feeling happy? <laughs> We're all, uh, I'm not going to hug you. Um, that's, that's very <laughs> you, get a, you have a 50-50 chance of being hugged when you go to uh, a celebration, but we are feeling optimistic. And, you know, I mean, how much more awkward can it be with a uh, a hug or a handshake? I went the other day to uh, give a handshake to someone, or and then it, we didn't know whether we should knuckle bump. So we kind of knuckle bumped, and then like, he had his hand open, and then I did the reverse. It's like, you don't know what you're supposed to do here, Dave. You you really don't. Um, you know, I, I at our office, we instituted a wristband. So when people greet someone, if you're wearing green, you can hug or handshake or it's red, you stay away. It's almost like we need to introduce this wow. parties so we know what's wow. going on. Uh, hey, I, I remember, hey, I, Dave, I remember bars in the day where you used to wear certain colors, depending upon what your ambition was for the evening. Now, my God, it's, it's turned into something the way we survive a global <laughs> pandemic. That's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, Dave, but, oh, times have yeah, changed. No, it's, it's very fun. Dave Schultz with his executive VP of Leger and how we're thinking going into this holiday season as a more vaccinated society. Dave, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. All right. Thank you. You too. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. Will Erskine around the board. Uh, Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks out of the newsroom and around the big round table to talk about the issues of the day. Round table. Good to see you all. Hope you're all having a great day today. Well, you know, it's Tuesday, so we're getting closer to uh, the weekend. (laughs) Almost there. There you go. How many Tuesdays do you have left, Ted? I should maybe reiterate that. Uh, Ted's retiring in December. Have you counted down like I've got so many Mondays left, so many Tuesdays Uh, left? I'd be doing that. No. Do you have the calendar on the wall like a kid at Christmas? 14 for 17 days counting today. Um, so, uh, if you do that one, two, three, I, I think maybe four, four, na, four na, Tuesdays. Na, 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 na. <laughs>
All right. Uh, let's start with a poll question of the day, kids. Uh, and, of course, uh, you can find this on Twitter. We would love to hear what your thoughts are. Do you, uh, do you pay attention to the, the throne speech? The throne speech follows an election, and it basically lays out uh, what the government's intentions are uh, moving forward. Uh, with just coming off an election, we pretty much, uh, you know, carbon copy of what we heard there. That being said, I mean, in the news business, we all pay attention because it's our gig. But do you think the average Canadian does? Do you? Ted? Nope. No, don't. And, you know. <laughs> Which would explain why I, no. I listened to the no. whole thing today. No, it's a, you know, I, honestly, a budget is one thing, but a throne speech? No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's a good Yawn. Point. You don't like Yawn. the pageantry, no. Ted? Oh, please. The, the- Pomp and circumstance with the black rod they were bringing out today and they were talking about the, you know, black rod procession and it's a little much. But, uh, you know, you know, you bring up an interesting point here uh, in that we all certainly know. And this is historic uh, pomp and circumstance. So we have to honor that. We have to remember that. However, coming out of a global pandemic, do we have the patience for this stuff? Uh, does mind you, they, it was a shorter speech than normal, I guess. But are, are we in this headspace or, 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 or is this just look do we view this differently in a post pandemic world? Absolutely. And people right now are thinking of uh, Christmas. What are they going to do? How are they going to get the Christmas shopping done? How are they going to get through to the end of the year? I would suggest to you that they couldn't care less about the throne speech and anything political for the next little while. Nobody cares. Well, I mean, if you look at it this way, too, there's no surprises in what was released today in the throne speech. We no. knew that that was going yeah. to be the case, right? So watching it, listening to it, it's it's more of a ceremonial thing than actually getting any meat and potatoes from it, right? Yep. Well, you want to weigh in? Well, I'm just thinking that uh, I think it would actually help them if they leaned into that pomp and circumstance, you know, did it up a little more fan- fancier outfits, maybe brought out the rituals. <laughs> but at the same time, it's not just the pandemic that's shortened our attention span and our interest. They ought to build it so that it could be like six posts as an Instagram story or just bring in the Lizzo music, make a couple TikTok videos out of the whole thing and then release that. And then maybe they'd get the public's attention. Will wants to see a comedian and maybe some nice jazz uh, leading into the ceremony to say, you know, kind of torque it up a bit. And maybe the but, PM you know, dance a bit. No, but, nobody but again, wants to see that. <laughs> but again, you know, we're coming out of a global pandemic. We're talking about the pomp and circumstance at this point about the throne speech, but even politicians. Are we looking different at politicians and our politics now at this point in the pandemic? Because I, and, yeah. and I'm sure I might speak for some in the newsroom. Uh, we've been exposed to this stuff every single day for 80 some odd weeks and what have you. And, you know, I think people's patience are wearing thin with the politics of the day. Thoughts? Can I be serious for a second? Yeah. I will, let's see. Uh, no, I'm thinking, yeah, because we also had a taste of a lot more cooperation and a lot more of uh, humanity than we've seen in politics for a little while. We were losing that, and then it kind of came back during the pandemic, and I think it's dr- it's trickling away again, and I think that's agitating people, too, at least on a subconscious level. And it trickled away because of all the election rhetoric and the vitriolic comments that were made in the election yeah. campaign. And yeah. if you think you're, if, if you you're going to get away from it, maybe through the Christmas holidays, but we have a print election coming up which all the pundits are saying is going to be nasty so if you think you're getting away from it you're not yeah and i mean i think at first exactly what will was saying you know they they almost became human there in the beginning the uh, politicians uh, (laughs) during the start of the pandemic and i'm kidding and uh you know and then we got we were in this we're all in this together kind of mood and then you know something changed where we're all back at you know, hammering them and criticizing them. The old and I habits. Think, yeah, and I think it really had a lot to do with, with when the federal election was called and we realized, wait a second, are they really not caring about our best interests anymore? Here's, <laughs> I think, where things started to change, and it was just about this time last year, where one of the politicians, and I can't for the life of me recall who it was, his name, uh, sent that little Christmas greeting sitting by the fireplace and, you know, oh, having yeah. eggnog. And he had his butt parked <laughs> out in some island, and it was a scam. And that was yeah. not the first time that we had saw that. That's where I think that the bloom really started to turn for people. I know it did for me. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I agree with Diana. You know, you go back to the very early stages of this pandemic. People were very, I think Canadians were very surprised and excited to see not only different stripes of governments working together, but different levels of government working together. And I remember asking at the beginning of all this, well, maybe well, this will make us all more uh, empathetic and we won't see what we, we normally do. But obviously, uh, it's a different game now. Yep. Sadly. All right, uh, another one we're going to throw in, and we just we just heard this from a guest, and uh, this, this company is using a color coded wristband, so employees can have when you go back to the workplace, so you can identify who to hug, who to shake hands with, or who to stay away from. I don't know if any of you people remember Lulu's up in Kitchener, yep. uh, the big old nightclub <laughs> that was once a Kmart store. This reminds me of when they'd sell the balloons, and it was like you know, stay away from me. I'm available. I'm looking for this. I'm looking for that i mean good idea or not different idea um so yeah i i kind of like it you know i kind of like it because it i liked it, it at lulu's but you like it in the workplace <laughs> well generally here at the workplace i uh, here in the mighty halls of uh, the uh, ten thousand watt blowtorch which is known as 875 main street west i usually just walk <laughs> around and say can i give you a hug when when there's people that, in and the that's building, all he does <laughs> You see, <laughs> well, you know what? I'm 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 going out with a lot of affection. So when there's people here, that's what I'll be asking them. You know what? With you retiring and you know going out with a lot of affection, you can laugh all you want, but there's a a perfect reason, people. You're going to get a lot of hugs, Teddy. I I would hope so. I would hope so. Um, you know. Uh, oh, I thought maybe you'd be saying no, no. I don't need the hugs. Oh, please. if we know that we're if if we know that you're wearing the green balloon, then we're in. <laughs> Yeah, so is it like a yes or no, or are they varying ones? Like, I'll take a bear hug, I'll take a light fake air hug, you know, like, is there different <laughs> you gotta varying get the, uh, stages? The color swatches, so yeah. you can read. Well, I think they had three color-coded uh, things at the company. I remember at Lulu's, they had like six balloons. So there was, for every mood, there was a balloon. So I think with three here. But yeah, I don't know. Does it, does it, create, does it identify? Does it label people? I think it opens or, a lot of doors if we do this for this. Like, what are we going to wear wristbands for next? I, uh, <laughs> wow. I don't Maybe I'll cut myself off there. No, I, I think it's a good, it's a good idea. At least over the over the holiday season, for how how comfortable are you with someone coming up and shaking a hand? Because you said earlier that you had that awkward moment of, can I shake your hand? Can I bump knuckles? What do we do? Uh, you, Scott, and, uh, and someone else you were speaking to earlier in the week. I think it's yeah. a good idea, at least for some of the holiday parties or something. Yeah, I don't like the handshake right now. Still, it creeps me out. And, you know, you show up with a burlap yeah. sack over no. your head, people are going to get the message, aren't they? There you exactly. go. All right. It is 445. Thank you, Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks, and Will Erskine around the big table. We will see you again tomorrow. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, we're getting more and more vaccinated. The vast majority of us are who are eligible are vaccinated up in over the mid-80s. Uh, now for those that are eligible, obviously the kids started today. Uh, you're able to book appointments for um, vaccination of the kids 5 to 11. We understand that 68,000 appointments were booked today. Uh, that's about 1 million kids from the 5 to 11 uh, year age group. So uh, quite a big dent on the first day. So uh, good news there. They're hoping for somewhere between... 50 and 80 percent of vaccination, depending on uh, what the situation is with parents. But obviously, moving forward, as we have more and more vaccines heading into a holiday, uh, but different this year, much like Thanksgiving was uh, just a few months ago, uh, because so much so many of us are uh, the vast majority of us all who are eligible are already vaccinated. So what does that mean moving forward? A new Leger poll out that we talked about a little earlier says that about half uh, plan to move a little closer to the family this this holiday season. And, you know, uh, so much for the social distancing. I'm sure uh, many are still concerned over vaccinations and will ask those questions. But as a result, more are moving uh, closer together. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor, School of Population and Public Health at Ryerson. And with us now, Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thank you. So half in this Leger poll, say roughly half, just under half, will uh, get a little bit closer this holiday season. Does that have you concerned or due to the uh, vast majority of us vaccinated, uh, this can be expected? 
Yeah, we're on a we're bouncing on a sort of a knife edge here, Scott. I mean, on the one hand, we've got uh, some pretty good figures coming out of Ontario. Now they're turning up a little bit in the last uh, what ten, fourteen days. A little bit, other than going down, we're going up slightly. The the RT numbers going up, the cases per day are going up, but we're still way, way, way below what's happening in the Netherlands, Germany, and Austria, for example. And I think what's happening there, if we look at that and say, well, can we learn? from that and how can we avoid where they're where they're going to begin with their vaccination rates were lower than ours um, they had uh, intervals between the first and second shot that were shorter than ours we know that that mm. produces a slightly lesser of an effect and uh, and in general they uh, they they relax they threw away the masks a little too early so we can learn from that, and we can say, look, we're on a fairly good path here. Let's keep on going. We're facing some rough weather now, and then as we're coming inside, we're closing up the doors and windows. Ventilation becomes a little more, more, you know, hot and heavy in there, and that's what we don't want to see with viruses. But at least let's try and keep some of those precautions going that are, you know, restricting the number of strangers all thrown together into one room and so on. Uh, and you bring up a valid point about uh, uh, vaccination and travel and what we've seen in Europe. And the reason being, because many have asked what's going on there. And as you mentioned, lower, lower vaccination rates and uh, earlier dropping of protocols. We saw the same sort of thing happen in Alberta as a result of them just becoming a little too uh, excited, a little too early. That being said, with travel and people will travel over the holidays, uh, and are certainly allowed to now. What are your thoughts about travel, especially if you are heading to places like a Europe? Well, I think that uh, the advice of them, we, we've learned an awful lot over the last, uh, what is it, 21 months, something like that. And I think that uh, airline travel is, is, is returning slowly, cautiously. I think if everybody on the plane has been vaccinated, that's a good thing. The ventilation on the plane is is pretty good. It's all HEPA filter stuff. But with the vaccination and certainly with a mask, I, would, I wouldn't go on a plane without wearing a mask anyway, just as mm-hmm. a normal thing. Going to an airport, my goodness, I'm going to wear a mask just almost indefinitely, I think. But it can be done, yeah. So the travel is done. Uh, journalists move around all the time, reporters, uh, scientists attending uh, conferences and so on. It's, it's happening. So, uh, yep, I think, I think it's this case of being right on the edge. Everybody is sick and tired of this. Everybody wants it to be over. My goodness, how long has this been? Uh, but we can't throw away the, the caution yet. Let's keep on going on the right. We're doing the right thing. Pat ourselves on the back and keep the course going. Let's not uh, throw away what we've achieved. And all we have to do is look uh, at other places to see what happens when that isn't the case. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor, School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University. As always, Tim, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Of course, this weekend, Tim Hortons Field, uh, Ty Cats and Alouettes, and Rick Zamperin has your tickets tomorrow on Good Morning Hamilton. Uh, tomorrow, Thursday and Friday, uh, Rick Zamperin, Good Morning Hamilton will have tickets for you to see the Eastern semifinal, Tim Horton Field, uh, and of course, uh, the Ty Cats taken on the Alouettes, uh, in that game. And, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Good Morning Hamilton will have your tickets. Make sure you're listening to Rick and the gang tomorrow. All right. Uh, what else we got? Oh, uh, lots going on uh, federally. We're hearing about the throne speech, uh, which takes the attention off what happens provincially. Uh, But there are some things going on that we want to try to get you an update on. One, the optometrist story. Also, an Auditor General uh, report that came out this morning on the environment, which really doesn't seem to be making too much news. But we'll find out more from Sabrina Nanji, founder of the Queen's Park Observer, and is with us now. Sabrina, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Uh, first, with the Auditor General thing this morning on the environment, I saw this uh, this news conference being announced and such. Is there anything newsworthy here? Is there anything that stood out? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this report is something that the Auditor General is doing now that we don't have our standalone environmental watchdog, uh, as as you know, axed by the, the PC government. And so this, this audit is a special audit that we get. And you're right, it doesn't grab too many headlines. But at the end of the day, still not very good headlines for the Ford government. Essentially, the upshot of this this audit is that the government is ignoring the public's right to consultation on uh, projects that are really environmentally significant and have a big impact on the environment. You know, they are letting companies off the hook for pollution costs. 
um, and allowing harm to endangered species. So really, you know, a lot a lot of work for the Ford government um, to to, uh, to to look at here in, in some of these recommendations, but uh, not not so much headline grabbing. And that's actually something the Auditor General um, mentioned that you know if maybe there was a bit more awareness uh, that the public does have the right uh, you know to know more about these projects uh, that that they could hold the Ford government a little bit more accountable. So, you know, uh, I think that there, there's a lot, not a lot of attention happening there, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's very important and, and significant that's happening at Queen's Park. It'll be interesting to see if that gets some legs as the week progresses. Uh, obviously, the Optometrist Association and the government uh, have, have uh, trying, been trying to get together. They've been a stalemate for the longest time. Now they're back together talking and have pretty much provided a, a, a media blackout for that. But this is a, an ongoing issue. This has been a problem for a long time. Is that accurate? Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, they, the optometrists say that they've been underfunded for years. This goes back to even before the Ford government, and, um, you know, the, the liberal era days. And you're right, typically when they're back at the bargaining table, which, uh, you know, they, they're going to go back now in formal negotiations, they're not really saying much to the media. They're keeping everything hush-hush. Um, but we do know that the main sticking point here is is the funding. And so now uh, they, they are returning, um, you know, the job action was to remove OHIP-funded eye exams for, for kids and seniors, you know, some of the most vulnerable people. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of bad optics all around. And so, mm. uh, you know, the, the, the optometrists did say that this was a, a sign of good faith, you know, them um, uh, withdrawing the job action, bringing those eye exams back. And, you know, don't forget, I mean, I, I don't know how well that really went with the public. Uh, it, it's not a good look, you know, for the optometrists, too. And, um They've had these types of bargaining tactics in the past where they end up rubbing the public the wrong way. There was a time not too long ago when they were sending patients to emergency rooms instead of seeing them in their offices as a way to put pressure on the province, you know, which is obviously paying for those ER room visits. Um, And and that was amid another contract dispute. But at the end of the day here, you know, uh, the optometrists say that Ontario is underfunding these eye exams and they're having to pay almost half out of their own pockets. So at the, it's going to come down to funding. We don't have any changes on the details there. The province had offered about $40 million, uh, you know, to, to help make up that gap in, in the cost of the eye exams. The optometrists say it doesn't cut it. So it might be a long battle at the bargaining table, but uh, some, things to be, some things to be positive about at this point. Uh, because this has been neglected for so long and they were so far apart for the longest period of time, is the gap too big to bridge? I mean, there's going to have to be a lot of compromise here. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's go- it seems like it's going to have to come down to, to dollars and cents here, really. Um, and we know that the Ford government, they're trying to, they're dealing with a huge deficit. They, they're, they're trying to bring that down. You know, that they, they are, um, they're all about cutting the gravy and not that this is necessarily gravy, but yeah, it might be tough times at the negotiating table. I thought it was, uh, you know, somewhat a little unexpected, but we would have to take it with a grain of salt that Gila Martau, um, you know, a member of the PC caucus, uh, calling her own government out. And, and she, you know, is an optometrist by trade, I guess, before her MVP days. And, you know, mm. she slammed her own government saying that, you know, that their bargaining tactics were just way out of whack. You know, they weren't um, being cooperative. But uh, as I say, you know, Martau, she's, she's not running for the PCs again next year. Uh, so, you know, she, she's not exactly towing the party line, but she, she had some things to say. And so I think, you know, this is going to be a tough battle. There's an election coming up not too far from now. And, you know, the Ford government's going to want to get a deal because, uh, you know, the, as I said, you know, withdrawing eye exams, uh, that, if that happens again, if there's more job action in the future, if there's no deal, uh, the public's really going to feel it. All right. Sabrina Nanji with us, founder of the Queen's Park Observer, talking about all things Queen, uh, Queen's Parkish, including the ongoing uh, battle between the Optometrist Association and the government of Ontario, hopefully getting something solved as they hit into their uh, prospective uh, offices and try to hammer out a deal uh, behind closed doors. Sabrina, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. The throne speech earlier on, the opposition speaking up 
uh, obviously the Governor General giving the throne uh, the throne speech, and then shortly afterwards uh, the opposition makes its way to the microphone to say what they have to say. Uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole says a liberal throne speech offers no solutions for inflation or national unity, and he says the inflation crisis is a creation of the liberal government, which he says spent more than any other country, uh, G7 nation, sorry, to respond to the crisis and had problems uh, before the pandemic began. Here's what Aaron O'Toole had to say. There's nothing in the throne speech that deals with inflation, the cost of living crisis, the national unity crisis. There's no plan to get people working. So I want Canadians to take one thing from this throne speech. To the millions of Canadians being left behind, we're going to be their voice on the economy. We've heard nothing from this government. Uh, and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says the Liberals clearly made no effort in the throne speech to work with the other parties. Uh, the NDP leader Singh says he remains committed to making this minority parliament work, but the speech makes no mention of some things critical for the NDP, including pharmacare and ending subsidies for fossil fuel. Here's what NDP leader Jagmeet Singh had to say. Right now, this is not a speech that demonstrates a willingness to work together or uh, shared values about building a better Canada. But uh, we want to make it clear to the Liberals, as we've said in the past, as I've said, don't take our support for granted. This is not a speech that looks like they're interested in working together at this point. All right, there you have it. The two opposition leaders, main opposition leaders, uh, commenting on the throne speech from earlier today. The bloc has already said they will support uh, it looks like they will support this, so uh, we're certainly not going to see any election anytime soon, which is a good thing, because uh, I don't think many Canadians are even paying attention to this, let alone an election. We ended up uh, just not long ago ending up where we were after spending 600 uh, and some odd uh, million dollars on an election to end up basically in the same sort of place. Uh, I, everybody's saying that this is going to be a longer session than the previous, uh, simply because we've been dragged through this. Everybody Everybody's sick and tired of this, the pandemic. And uh, as we talked about earlier on the roundtable, I think people are just getting tired of politics. They're getting tired of the same old stuff and hearing the same old thing from from political parties. And, you know, again, in the throne speech, uh, nobody left. uh, Nobody gets left behind uh, as well. Uh, Build back better. We heard that several times again. Uh, and the use of the word, the word middle class, uh, for those trying to, for the middle class and those trying to join the middle class, which we've heard for years and years and years. David Aiken from Globalflow brought up a great point and he said, we did hear the word accelerate a lot during this speech, which means it's the stuff they've been talking about for a long time, but really just haven't done. Obviously, now there's the need to at least make it appear as if something is being done. Throne speech was delivered earlier today, uh, shorter than uh, recent memory, uh, maybe because it's just uh, obviously uh, an election where not much has changed. So we heard a lot of the same thing. Not sure if that has anything to do with it. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Thank you so much for that, Michael. I think the first thing I noticed about this speech was I'm I'm hearing the same tired terms that I've been hearing through the last election campaign and the one before that, uh, constantly hearing nobody gets left behind, constantly hearing build back better. I think I heard that three times uh, as well. The middle class, it's for the middle class and those trying to join the middle class. Um, Is there anything new here? Our cohort, uh, David Aiken from Global News, news brought out uh, a good point he said i did hear the word uh accelerate quite a bit which means the stuff that they've been talking about for a while maybe they're going to finally do but what are your what's your take on what we heard not the valid assessment by david he's right i didn't hear that either it's a good point um look a lot of these slogans are very very common for governments and i even admit the conservative government i work for used canada's new government for a long period of time far too long in fact to the point that I can still in my dreams remember writing it for speeches and things, as other people working at that time can too. But the, a lot of these slogans are good to have in the sense that, you know, and there's been lots of studies about it, people tend to remember buzzwords or short clips or tiny phrases or punchy lines far more so than long speeches. You know, the days of Abraham Lincoln debating Stephen Douglas, you know, which were incredible to read about, incredible to analyze, and looking at the original 
speeches themselves were were just sensational overall. It doesn't sell today. So unfortunately, things like Build Back Better and all this jazz, it, it, it's something that obviously the Liberal government has decided via focus groups or internally that that's what they want to do and they keep promoting it. And, you know, we don't hear as much about, for example, Sunny Ways, which was not Justin Trudeau's line to begin with. It was Sir Wilfrid Laurier's, but he's kind of incorporated mm-hmm. into his agenda. That was common for a few years, and then it gradually disappears. Every government does that. So I'm not going to fault the Trudeau liberals, and I fault them for a lot. I'm not going to fault them for that. But I think the big thing is, overall, is that even with all this, you're looking at basically a budget that, yes, as you correctly said off the top, was mercifully shorter than, than recent ones have been. You know, the size of speeches and the length of speeches have increased multifold over the years. But there was really nothing of substance here other than a lot of promises, which I'm sure we'll talk about, just that are just going to be enormous spending measures and grandiose solutions about how he's going to, quote unquote, bring the pandemic to an end, which is fascinating since I, he can't do it. And I don't think any government can do it. But it's nice to say. You know, and uh, he's going to obviously have his environmental pet projects, climate change, emphasize the carbon tax, he'll bring out the new child care plan, etc. It's just a lot of spending. So you're right, it is good that the speech was short, the throne speech was short, but in the end, ultimately, he's just saying the same sort of things, and it's just going to cost Canadians an enormous amount of taxpayer dollars. Uh, is there still a minister of the middle class? What happened there? Well, no. I don't believe that there is. And again, going yeah. back to one of those catchphrases yeah. about it's all for the middle class and those trying to join it. He even doubled yeah. down on that last election with making a minister of the yeah. middle class, which I thought was funny, considering that's what most of the people are that are voting. So why you, we would need a minister for that? You would just assume that most would know what that's all about. Uh, but again, to me, that's just another extension of all of this. It is an extension of all this. I mean, there are certain ministries that have been created by liberal and conservative governments that would not be necessary. And, you know, we could go through a laundry list of them. Even when you're just breaking a ministry apart, you know, you've seen ministries such as, well, women's issues was broken apart from one part. Immigration had a couple of sections broken off. It's not unusual to do this. The problem is that when you build these bigger cabinets or these super ministries overall, you find that, A, a lot of them are quite obvious, like the one that you pointed out to the middle class, and B, you're really just giving an increased role, an increased salary to a minister who, yes, he or she may be valuable to you in some fashion, but it's for a position that really didn't need to be filled, and it just sort of alludes to or points out more government waste that's occurring in Ottawa, and there's plenty of it already. So, yeah, I agree with you. We didn't, you didn't really need it, and you won't hear much about it for sure. We always talk about how people's attitudes have changed or will change post-pandemic. We can't go through something like this for 88, 89 weeks and not come out a, a different society, a different sure. world. Uh, and we certainly know how people are very fatigued with the whole uh, global pandemic and what has been going on. But at least way back at the beginning, I think many Canadians were really... Uh, maybe excited is too strong a word, but impressed that every level of government and every political stripe really started working together and at least proved to Canadians that this could be done. Uh, mm-hmm. We're all still going through a, a global pandemic and trying to get out of it. They're fighting again. Do we have the patience for this that we did before this pandemic? Yeah, bipartisanship certainly did exist in Canada for a long period of time, as it did in other parts of the world, too. And unfortunately, it's something like a global health pandemic that usually brings all sides together. Um, we saw it, you know, if you look historically at other pandemics, including the Spanish flu, you know, after World War One, same sort of thing happened where left and right, no matter what the country is, they work together for the, the greater good or for the betterment of society. Uh, so, yes, it was good in theory to see that. And you can certainly understand why left-leaning governments, including the one we're talking about being Justin Trudeau's liberals, and right-leaning governments, you know, on a provincial level, sort of taking the same sort of position to help individuals, help families with emergency relief measures like, you know, CERB, CUWS, provincial extensions of various things, including, you know, helping with um, welfare or deferred mortgage payments and other things. There were lots of things that were discussed. A lot of things went in. Each province handled it differently, naturally. But the end result was obviously gratifying for most people. The problem is that's not reality, and that's not how politics works. That's not how daily life works in general. And while no one is saying 
that the political right and the political left are always under, you know, always attacking one another on every single thing. The attacking is obviously more common, and you know, it's not covering old ground. I talked about it with you. I've talked about it with others. I'm sure you've talked about it with many guests. It's very, very common, and it has made politics in general more partisan, more, you know, more charged, uh, more ideologically rigid. It becomes very difficult to get things done. I think what happened is certainly during COVID-19 very quickly is that initially when you brought out the various emergency relief measures, either on a federal or provincial basis, most Canadians, no matter their political stripe that they have one, understood why it had to be done. But once things began to, I wouldn't say resolve themselves, but we start to see these glimmers of lights with the introduction of COVID-19 vaccines, the fact that, you know, yes, we still have variants, but that people are starting to slowly but surely do things that they remember pre-COVID-19, going back to work and other things, although lots of people are still working from home and probably will for the foreseeable future, but they can see their families again, their friends, their loved ones. When all those things, uh, that the reality starts to rebuild itself, then people want to return, excuse me, back to normal. And one of the ways to do that is that the government should not be in charge of everything. That's not how we live in a democracy. In the, and especially when it comes to financial or fiscal issues, they want governments to be responsible. Even people on the left, the moderate left, understand that as well. When now, based on all the spending that's happened, and we know why it's happened, we don't have to go through all the reasons for it, we now see deficits and debts of enormous numbers that could take you know, years, decades, lifetimes to get to bring down, no matter even if the economy starts mm. rolling again properly, yeah. which undoubtedly will in this country. And for that reason, when you have, for example, like we saw today with the throne speech of the liberals, where it's just more and more spending on programs that most Canadians, you know, don't think are wildly important. And a lot of them are just pet projects for this prime minister. In the end, ultimately, they just see an enormous amount of spending like the spending they've seen since the, you know, the original outbreak last March when the WHO declared it a global pandemic. And they see, and when you see more of the same, they want something different. They need something different. They need their government to act mm. differently. Michael, doing that. Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, talking about the throne speech. As always, Michael, thank you for the time. Be well. You too. The Scott Radley Show will uh, hit the airwaves of CHML. Scott is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, how are you? Don't get to hear nearly enough tears for fear, like in that intro there. That was a nice throwback. There you go. All right. Uh, 86% of Canadians, over 86% of Canadians are fully vaccinated. Uh, Over 89% of Ontarians, 89% of Ontarians have had their first first dose. Uh, Again, as we start a new session of politics with the feds, all we're hearing about is the Liberals. How many of the Conservatives are vaccinated? Why don't they tell us who's vaccinated and who's not? Meanwhile, there's an independent body that has come up with a protocol for the House of Commons, which says you have to be vaccinated to get in or you need a medical exemption of some sort. And it's an independent body that discovers that, 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 that does that investigation in the House of Commons. So clearly any conservative that's in the building has been cleared to get into the building. So I guess my question is to you, do you give a rat's rear end at this point of this pandemic? for someone who is not vaccinated because honestly i am my family is and i don't give a crap if you're vaccinated or not because you're not coming into the stadium with me you're not coming into the uh restaurant with me and you're certainly not coming into the house if i don't invite you so who the hell cares at this point that every single person's gotta be vaccinated we gotta hold you down and stab you even though you don't want it i'm fully vaccinated Everybody should be. But why do we keep having this stupid argument when there's so many of us vaccinated, Scott? Because it's politics and because it seemed to gain traction during the election and because it's way easier to talk about this than the difficult issues that are facing them in the House of Commons. And you know what? If you can have one, if you can have a discussion that scores brownie points and and it's the target and you don't have to answer questions about the deficit and the debt and the inflation numbers and this and that and the other. Why would you not stick with the easy one? 
But again, Scott, you know, it's not about me. It's not about my family. It's not about their safety because that's covered. So it's just that, well, I'm doing it. I want my neighbor to do it too. How come I'm doing it and they're not, even though they don't get the privileges you do for being vaccinated? Why do we give such a rat's rear end about what our neighbor's doing? Because we do that with everything. <laughs> we do. We, we, we like to be superior. And I'm, I mean, like, like everybody, and I'm, not, I'm being like overstating it. But sure. It, we, we do like to believe that we're doing things right. And look at that person who's not. It does make us feel better. You know, Scott, back yeah. in high school, and, and, you know, this is, this is a little self-deprecating, but back in high school, I, I was not what you would call an excellent student. And I had a standard for my test that as long as I could find someone in the class who did worse than me, I felt reasonably okay. (laughs) So as long as I could, oh, well, Bob, I mean, look, I got 56, but look, he failed. Well, okay, somehow that makes you feel better. So, you know, to have your neighbor to be able to point and say, yeah, but they're not. I mean, or or their house, look at their house or look at their grass. But they can't do the things you're doing because you've got vaccinated. They, you, you get privilege for doing this. They don't. So why do you have to be superior to someone who you're more privileged than? Look, you didn't ask me if it made sense. You said, why are we doing this? <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't make sense. And I mean, there, there's even the argument that would be, well, wait a second. If the vaccines work as well as we're told they do, and I think most of us who have got it have received it because we believe in them. If they work as well as they do, really, if Bob next door doesn't have it, who cares? Because I'm protected. Yeah. Now, I yeah. know there's the Delta variant, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But even you can get it even with the vaccine. So theoretically, if you've got your vaccine and it's the normal COVID, you shouldn't worry at all about your neighbor because you're protected. And the stuff you're not protected against, you can't be protected against. So don't worry about that either. Good point. Who's on the show tonight? Uh, we're going to be talking about, um, we got a whole bunch of stuff. What are we talking about? Oh, the uh, Chuck Dolenbach is one of the people we have on, the tuba player. You ever listen to the Canadian Brass? They're coming to town. Yeah. Uh, love the Canadian Brass. He's coming on. We're also talking about, you know, Scott, you've probably discussed this on your show over the years. Every time somebody tries to build a large, tall condo or apartment <laughs> in the city, what happens? Yep. Right. Complain. Nimbyism. So we're going to be talking now that we can't expand the urban boundary. You're going to have to go up. As you and I talked, I think, on the show yesterday, we're going to talk yep. to a city councilor about are you going to make zoning easier so these buildings can happen or what happens if you don't? Good point. Good Scott Radley show tonight. And uh, Scott, of course, host of the show and columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Will and Ted and Diana for contributing today. Coming up next is the CHML uh, News and then Scott Radley. As always, we leave it to you, the CHML listener, to have the last word. Hey, Scott. My wife watched the throw speech earlier today. I got a recording of it right here.